We've been talking the last several weeks that there's just so much to talk about when it comes to to walking in the spirit or there's so much that our hearts begin to experience when we really begin to give our hearts to the spirit and really want to walk with the spirit um, that it seems like there's a almost never-ending supply of things to to talk about and again just to kind of bring us all back onto the same page this morning there's a huge difference between between Christians who just believe in the spirit believe that the bible talks about a spirit think that that spirit is real but there's a difference between those kinds of believers and believers who really are trying to bring their lives to the spirit in submission and in real hunger and real thirst and real desire to walk in the spirit to live in the spirit to be to love by the spirit to pray in the spirit to buy the work of the spirit the power of the spirit to put to death the deeds of their flesh and those are just two really different things walking in the spirit has to do with how you live all the time it has doesn't have to do with what just what you believe in it has to do with how you're living it has to do with a, a surrender of the will uh, an experience of having our will no longer be uh, our leader it has to do with living in such a way that we're carefully watching and looking and and submitting and obeying it's kind of like a full-time job it's something that requires our attention and really all of our heart and i think a lot of people don't make steady progress in growing in the spirit partly some people i think don't make real progress or experience real growth because they don't begin right and i think we've talked a little bit about that we've talked about how to begin to live in the spirit or to walk in the spirit it, it involves really a changing a t- complete changing of direction which is called repentance that's what repentance is repentance should not be taught as just an apology for things that have been done repentance the the, the way that when i think about the word repentance i think about someone going east on a road and everything about his life has to do with that trajectory, that aim, that direction. He's going east. And then when he actually repents, he doesn't just uh, try to take Jesus along with him as he continues going east. He actually turns around and heads west. And the rest of his life is about going a complete opposite direction. And every other kind of beginning with the Spirit, I think, that doesn't involve an actual change of direction. A turning around and heading a completely different direction is, uh, it's, not a real, it's not a real repentance. It's not a real right beginning. There's a lot of people who try to take Jesus east with them for a while and, it, it, and, and usually in short time or sometimes in longer time, their, their Christianity is really indistinguishable from their own life. It's just still the things that they want, the things that they're pursuing, the way that they want to go, 
what they're desiring and and in some way or another they've they've um, found a way to have religion or, or Christianity or Jesus have some kind of a place in that but to really begin to follow Christ to really begin to experience what it and I didn't learn this for a long time. I wish I would have. I mean, I didn't really see it clearly. I think I tasted little bits and pieces of this or sometimes was confronted with more of the reality of it. But to really follow Christ is to stop going east entirely and to go a different direction where your will is no longer the leader of your life, where your direction is set for you by the careful following and soft-hearted surrendering and diligent submission to the, the present manifestation of light, whatever measure of light that you're able to see in right now. And so anyway, I was saying that, that some people have a beginning that isn't, that isn't really the right beginning. It's a beginning that, um, that changes their beliefs, but it doesn't actually change their course. It's a beginning that... that changes what they what they think about God or what they think about life or what they think about eternity, but it doesn't actually change the direction that everything is heading. Others have a very real beginning, I think, a very um, sincere beginning, a real willingness to turn everything around and to to follow in a completely different direction. but then they uh, they get confused and they or they get discouraged or they get, uh, lost when they begin to experience what the scriptures talk about or call the wilderness. The wilderness is something that I think is very little talked about today. In fact, I know for a fact that a lot of uh, Christian teachers, they, they actually say that in the New Covenant, there's no need for such a thing as a wilderness journey. Uh, that 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 was something for the old covenant, or that was something for God's rebellious people, Israel, or something like that. But that that's no longer should be the expectation and the experience of people that are that are Christians that are following Christ. And I just want to say real clearly, openly, and strongly that that's absolutely false. So. I wanted to talk today a little bit about that. I thought that maybe I would say some things about the wilderness, about what it is, about why it is what it is, about why it's necessary, um, about what it is that we experience in the wilderness and why we have to experience it. And, and again, I think both of these things are important. I think beginning well is important. I think starting with our hearts turned in the right direction is important. And I also think that... Um, Traveling on well, continuing well through the wilderness is important. Jesus, when Jesus describes the beginning of our journey, the beginning of our uh, our discipleship, he says he uses phrases like, "No one can be my disciple unless they deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me." Or he says, "No one can be my disciple unless they lose all that they have, or uh, unless they hate father, mother, brother, sister, even their own lives." And follow me. That's that's the way you have to start. He doesn't give you another way. He, he doesn't talk about adding correct beliefs to your life or believing in a, a supernatural being that wants to bless you. He he talks about a, an actual surrender of the heart. And, but when he talks about following, when he talks about like kind of like the big picture or the 
the long-term view, I guess you could say. He, he describes it in words that are, I'll give you an example, like in Luke 14. He says in verse 28, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. In these verses, it's clear that um, Jesus is describing what we're He's giving he's giving us to understand that what we're what we're embarking on, what we're beginning, is something grand. It's something big. It's something that's going to be like building a tower. Uh, it's not a small attempt. It's not a it's not a small thing. It's it's like a warfare where you're going to feel outnumbered. You're going to feel there's going to be a lot of times where you feel like it's ten thousand and there's twenty thousand coming at you, and you're going to feel a desire to send out a delegation and ask for terms of peace. In other words, you're going to you're going to you're going to feel a desire to quit or to settle for uh whatever terms of peace you can you can find. Peace for your flesh, peace for your for your old man. That's what it feels like. And when the Lord begins to to deal with us, he doesn't or begins to lead us. He doesn't just he doesn't lead us into what we would expect. He leads us into what the scriptures call the wilderness. So so what is the wilderness? That's the kind of the thing I want to talk about today a little bit. And what is the wilderness? How should we understand it? If I had to try to define it, <clears throat> there's a bunch of ways we could say it. But I think I would say that it's the nature of what it means to come out of our natural condition. It's, it's the journey, it's the process. It's, it's what it means and what it feels like to come out of our natural condition of slavery, of bondage, of Egyptian darkness, of being under the power of Pharaoh, of liking it that way, and coming into an experience of the kingdom of God or the promised land, which is a which is a picture of God reigning, God's power reigning in man by his law, by his righteousness, by his peace, by his joy. The wilderness is is what is in between <clears throat> the natural fallen condition of man and the condition of man that was his original condition and is his redeemed condition uh, where God is living and reigning and expressing his own life and goodness and love and, and righteousness and purity in and through the soul of man. The, the wilderness is what's between. That's, that's kind of the way to think about it. It's, it's the distance. It's a distance that's equivalent to the difference between Adam and Christ, if you can hear it that way. It's the distance that's equivalent to the difference between what man is in his fallen condition and what man is when he is experiencing the reign of God, the reign of Christ in his soul.
And, and because of that, I think it's also right to say, or another way to say it, is you could say that you are the wilderness in the sense that you are what you need to come out of and pass through in order to <clears throat> experience the kingdom of God. You can't bring what you are in Egypt, <clears throat> what you are in the fall, what you are in darkness and blindness and selfishness and pride. You can't bring that with you into the kingdom of God. See, that's, that's the thing that's keeping you from experiencing the kingdom of God. That's the thing that needs to be circumcised. That's the part that you can't just pack up what you are and who you are and bring it into an experience of who God is and what God is reigning in you. There has to be a putting off of the one so that you can put on the other. They don't mix together. And so when I say you're the wilderness, I mean what you are not what you are in your natural condition, in, in the fallen condition, what man is apart from God. There's so many scriptures that describe that condition, and I think we've looked at talked about a bunch of them recently, if I'm not mistaken. That that has to be you have to be led through it and out of it. When I say through it, I mean you have to see it. You have to see what it is. You're not gonna hate it and depart from it and let the Lord cut it away from you if you don't see it. You've got to see it. You've got to feel it. He's got to show it to you. You've got to turn your will against it. You've got to turn your eyes to him. You've got to let him show you what's in your heart that's not him. That's what the light does. That's what, it, that's what the light's for. It, it shows you everything in your heart that isn't, that is Egyptian that was born in Egypt. That's what it shows you. And it shows you a birth in you that cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There is a birth in man that cannot enter into and experience the kingdom of God. And that birth is that fallen fleshy birth that, that, that flesh gives birth to, to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit, the flesh profits nothing, the spirit gives life. Unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. But that there is a life that you have in you that is not the life of the flesh and blood of the Son of Man. And, and it's that, that the, the reason why God has to bring us into the wilderness is because all that that really means is God bringing us into a sight and a sense and a leaving of what we already are. It's not a bunch of trials that, or tests that he has to just make us pass. Like first you have to, let's see if what you're going to do here, and then if you pass that test, I'll get you this. It's not because God enjoys making things difficult. No, honestly, in every sense of the way, we're the ones that have made things difficult and, and do make our own exodus difficult in every, in every conceivable way. Wilderness is not God's arbitrary testing or arbitrary pain or arbitrary anything. It's just what you are and what you have to leave. And, and if you are willing to follow Christ, he's not gonna, he, it's impossible to lead you into the power and life and government and righteousness and purity and love of his spirit while you're still teeming on the inside with a whole bunch of things that were born in Egypt, that are Egypt's appetites and slavery and darkness 
and religious ideas and selfishness and all the things that are filling the heart of man in his natural condition. And so to bring us into an experience of the kingdom of, of God, which is God's reign in the soul of man, there has to be uh, something between Egypt and the promised land. There has to be. And that's why I say just because we're in the new covenant, it doesn't automatically and instantaneously take those things. There is a, there is a coming out of Egypt and then there's, a com- there's an Egypt coming out of us. And, and every, anyone that's really honest with themselves, I mean, you can, sit, you can stand there in a church for 50 years if you want to and say that you're already perfect just because you read it in the book or that you're already clean or that you're already righteous or that you're already filled with the love of God. You can say those things if you want to. You can get up on a pulpit and you can declare to, to people and to yourself that, that, that God already sees you perfect and clean and full of love and full of truth and but if you're really honest with yourself, anybody that's honest with themselves and wants more than just to claim something they're not experiencing is going to be led into the actual experience of coming out, passing through and coming out of what, of what you are. And it's called a howling wilderness. It's called a, a land of scorpions and fiery serpents. It's called a great drought for, for a very simple reason, because those are the things that have become real in you. Because those are partly by our own birth in the flesh, and then partly and greatly by our own following and contributing to and digging ourselves into by following the will of the flesh, by following the desires of the flesh, by following the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, by digging ourselves into an even greater slavery and darkness. He, he doesn't just, the Lord doesn't just throw you amongst scorpions and fiery serpents and droughts because he has any pleasure in it at all. Those are the things that are in us that we're always trying to not feel and not face and not talk about and not admit. There they are. They're there. They're there. They're in you. And when you begin to turn your will and turn your heart towards the Lord, he leads you into the sight and sense and feeling of those things so that he can lead you out of every single one by his own light and power. And that's what the wilderness is. It's a place of God's place, I say, in between air quotes, you know, um, because it's, it's, it's not really should be understood as a physical place or, or even a natural time period because it's not really, like you can't just say it's, it's three years or 30 years. You can't just put a time on it. You can't define it by time or by place. It's, again, the, the distance of it is the difference between flesh and spirit, between Adam and Christ. And it is... It is a but but for the for the, <clears throat> for the purpose or, or for the sake of not having any other words, I'm going to call it a place. It's a place of God's where God is teaching the soul something new. 
and teaching him to see something old. It's a, it's a place where God is correcting. It's a place where God is leading. It's a, it's a place where God is purifying and changing. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a place where God is doing all kinds of things in our hearts that are, are disagreeable to that first birth. And, and of course they're disagreeable. If you think about it, of course they're dis- disagreeable because they're not, they're not in and for that first fleshy nature. They're not for the, for the present pleasure of unrighteousness. They're not for the, the present goals and dreams of self-love and self-life. They're not, in other words, they're not for all the things that we lived for and in in Egypt. And so they, they have to be disagreeable. At least to, you could say they're disagreeable to that part. They're not disagreeable to that measure of his spirit and life that we're feeling in us. To that in us, they feel pleasant and good and right and necessary, even joyful. There's something, and that's that's what everybody feels in themselves, and 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 uh, everybody kind of lacks words to describe. You know, you you start to follow the Lord, and there's something about it that's hard and bad, and 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 discouraging, and and dis- I don't know, disappointing or something. <clears throat> but then there's another part of you that it's it's good, and it's life, and it's joy, and it's right, and it's clean, and it's satisfying, and it's. And, and how do you describe that? These two totally different things happening happening in the same soul. Well. Those, that's what, that's what happens in this process. The Lord leads you out of one thing and leads you into another. And to a very real part of you, it's death. It feels like death. To another very real part of you that you want to be even more real and more alive and more, um, more of your experience. It's, it's great. It's wonderful. It's everything you've, your heart feels like it's ever wanted. But as we begin to follow him, we, we start to, to see and to feel that everything in the wilderness is contrary to what we knew in Egypt. It's contrary to our mind, to what we understood. It's contrary to our desires, to, to, to our appetites, what we wanted. It's con- contrary to, to our understanding. It's contrary to our lust. It's contrary to our religion, the religion of Egypt. Because there's re- Egypt is a very religious place. It's got a lot of ideas about what worship is and who God is and what God wants and what it means to serve him. Re- re- Egypt is full of those, full of those ideas. And, and in fact... I think you can say that when the Lord begins to deal with you in the wilderness, um, there's nothing familiar about it. There's nothing familiar about it to, to that to that life that you've known. It's all, it all feels new. It feels different. And and at first, I think we talked about this in in. Um, I can't remember one of the messages we were, we were talking about. At first, the Lord gives you some time where he, like he did with Israel, <clears throat> proves himself to you. He gives you some time where, um, where just like his, his, his truth and his presence and his love and his purpose, they all seem so new and good and real. And he doesn't lead you right away into the experience of what's really in your heart. In fact, there's a verse in 
Ephesians, I'm sorry, Ephesians. Exodus um, uh, 13, I think. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And so God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. The Lord knows uh, that I think if, we, if he were to show us right away all of, all of the battle that laid before us, all of the enemies in our own house, all of what it's going to mean to actually travel that distance uh, between Adam and Christ, I think we would... Uh, like we would see war and we would quickly run back to Egypt. And so for a time in his, in his mercy and his kindness, he leads us in a way where we um, learn a little bit about his truth, learn to trust him a, a little bit more, learn his, his benevolent purpose, his good purpose for our souls, learn that he can provide, learn that he's better than our old taskmasters before he... Uh, brings us into seeing a whole lot of what actually is in our hearts. I, I think I can say that that was his, the way he dealt with me in, in this. I, I, when I began to awaken to a little bit of his truth and his light and his life, it was all, it was all kind of rosy for a while for me. I was so excited, so thankful, so happy to have something real that I, I had seen and tasted and felt of, of him. But then if we continue to follow him, he begins to, to bring us into this experience. An experience where there is a continual contrast going on, a continual teaching of his spirit of things that are different. That's really what the light does. The light manifests things that are different in us. As we follow it, as we love it, as we stay close to it, it begins to show us that which is in him and of him and for him and from him, that in which we can walk with safety, where we're going to continue to make progress, where we're going to continue to follow uh, in the right direction. And then it also shows us all kinds of things that are contrary, contrary to him. Remember, like a few weeks ago, I think we were talking about the, I started to, to talk about walking with Christ or, or walking in the light or walking in the covenant uh, with Christ as something like a circle, kind of like remaining in, in a circle. God takes you out of Egypt and plops you down in the middle of this, this circle that is called in Christ, or that is called in covenant with God and his son, or, or that's called, uh, I mean, whatever. You can call it a bunch of different things, but it's a, it's a real living re- relationship. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a circle or like being on a train and the train has a trajectory and the trajectory is going towards the promised land. And he, and he begins to try to teach you what it means to stay in that circle, to stay on the train. And if you if you learn to to stay on that train and 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 follow uh, what he teaches you, then 
you're going in the right direction and you're not going to, you're not going to miss of, of the destination. But if we, if we run outside of that circle, if we don't walk in the light, if we, if we transgress the boundaries of that covenant, if we live in our own will, if we live in the flesh, if we pursue the desires of the old man, if we follow the appetites that came with us from Egypt, if we create our own images, if we cre- create our own golden calves, th- then we're going to, he's going to make us find and feel in so many different ways that what we've chosen is death. What, we, what, what we've done without even maybe realizing it is we've started to get off that train. We started to follow our own will out of that circle. And so the Lord begins in his kindness, in his, in his mercy, he begins to teach us the boundaries of that covenant and show us what it means to walk with him. Where there is a safe place to cross this wilderness, where we're going to keep ourselves in a place where we are always crossing it, always moving through it, always avoiding the serpents and the scorpions and the droughts and the enemies that are on every side, so that if we just keep our eyes on that, and on that light that's above the tabernacle, we're not going to miss the way. If we just listen and submit and follow the things that he teaches us in that covenant, in that journey, uh, we're, we're going to end up in the right place. If we walk, or you could say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then he's going to both forgive us for all of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and it's in, in that time that we begin to understand what's in our hearts, what needs to come out of our heart, and what it really means to walk with him. And that's what the Exodus, well, that's what really, if you read the books, I know people kind of think that these are boring books, but I think they can only say that they're boring books if, if they don't see through them to what they're talking about. I mean, don't, don't see through the words because Exodus through Deuteronomy is all it is is just an incredible collection of little pictures and 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 and, and shadows and and types of things that we experience in this journey they're outward examples use, using all kinds of outward things that point to what happens what we find what we experience what we bump into when we're actually being led through the wilderness and so as we, as we begin, just to give you a, a few examples, as we begin to learn what it means to stay in this circle, to stay, to abide in Christ, to walk in the Spirit, to love His appearing, okay? As we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of, of this faith, as we look not at things that are seen, but look at those things which are unseen, as we, as we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, then, not, not, if, not if we've just adopted some new beliefs and started going to a new building, but if our hearts are really engaged in interacting with the living light of God, then we begin to find the very things that are pictured for us in Exodus through Deuteronomy. We begin to find the very reality of those things working in us. In other words, or to give you an example, we begin to find that there's a new food. It's a food we've never known before. It's, it's something that actually causes us to grow in a way that we've never 
grown before. We, we begin to find that there's some, some kind of food that comes out of heaven. It's not like the food that we've had appetites for in Egypt. It's not like it. It's a different kind of food. It comes from a different place. It doesn't meet all of our appetites and our desires. It's not the, the big, uh, uh, what's the name of that buffet you mentioned yesterday, David? Ponderosa. Golden Corral. Golden Corral, that's what it was. <laughs> it's not the Golden Corral buffet. It's that, that finds a way, it's all you can eat to fill your flesh in every way you can ever think about it. It's not the golden corral, it's manna. It's this little, this is little new kind of food. In fact, the word manna, it's so new that the word manna means what is it? What, what in the world is this? It comes from a different place and you have to put it in you. And, and the Lord begins to, uh, the Lord begins to make us aware that it that it's actually really important that we pay attention to what we're putting in ourselves. I'm not talking about natural food, although this maybe could tie in. Our relationship with food ties into it too, but I'm just talking about how the things around us are, are very often being put into us. And so the Lord begins to show you that there's there's these Egyptian appetites and desires and hungers and thirsts that we're, we're so used to just in every way stuffing satisfaction or trying to stuff satisfaction in the mouth of those appetites and then there's this other thing that that comes from heaven that we can we can eat or in 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 uh, in, a, in a similar picture there's clean and unclean animals clean and unclean foods clean and unclean things we can touch if you touch this and now think about think about some of these pictures i just read one yesterday if a dead grasshopper falls into your earthen vessel, what a weird thing that could happen. You know, how often does that happen? But, but, but he didn't write it because it happens a lot. He wrote it because of what the picture is. If a dead grasshopper falls into your earthen vessel, you have to break the vessel. It's unclean and unusable. And you're unclean, you're unclean until evening, until the start of a new day. That's a strange thing to read about. What's that? That everything in Exodus to Deuteronomy is this, is pointing to the same realities. If you touch a, a dead corpse, it has an effect. Uh, if you if you mingle with that with that which is dead, if you put in you that which is unclean, it has an effect on you. There's clean food. There's clean things that you can put into you, into your heart, into your mind, into your thoughts, into your life. And there's dirty things. You know, and, and, he, and he gives a, a, a list of those things for, for Israel. Not because, not, at least not primarily because, he's just interested in their healthy diet. That's not the reason that those are in there. They're in there because when you go into the wilderness to follow him, he begins to make a distinction between what kind of things are hurtful and what kind of things are helpful for you to put inside of you. And, and you begin to feel that death. You don't have to go outside the camp like they did and wait till evening or wash with the, the water from the red heifer that's mixed with the ashes of the red heifer in order to come back in. But you do begin to feel inwardly that a death comes over that life that you, that you began to feel in the spirit. You begin to feel that if a dead grasshopper gets into your vessel, then there's a breaking that takes place. There's something that's not clean about it and you feel it. There's all kinds of religious 
ideas, ideas about God, ideas about Christ, ideas about the Bible, ideas about God's purpose, ideas about what it means that God loves you and how God loves you or, or, or what his direction is or where he's leading you. There's a whole bunch of Egyptian ideas that came with you out of Egypt and you can actually, now, now pay attention too to, to Exodus, where is it, 33, 34, somewhere in there where they build the golden calf because they were building, even Aaron fell for this. They were creating their own idea about the God that brought them out of Egypt. They weren't saying, let's forget about the God that brought us out of Egypt and do this other thing. They were saying this other thing that I've already had in my mind and in my thoughts and in my desires, this way to worship him, this thing that he looks like, this way, what it means to follow him, that's what I'm going to create. In other words, I'm going to hang on to the name Jesus and I'm just going to change what it means to, to walk with him and to serve him and to celebrate him and to have religion that pleases him. That's what I'm going to do. And, and that's what they did with the golden calf, not being taught by him, but in the absence of Moses simply manifesting what was already in their own heart, bowing down to it. And God, while Moses was still up on the mountain, says, your people have created an abomination and so quickly have departed from the way in which I was leading them. Where did that come from? See, that, that was already in them. It wasn't something they learned in the wilderness. It was something they started to see in the wilderness. And if they didn't see it, if they weren't willing to see it, then they would never be able to turn from it and depart from it. And the Lord begins to show us that in ourselves. And again, these things are, they're, they're, they're disagreeable to our natural state. The Lord begins to show us a new law, a law that is righteous, a perfect and unchangeable uh, nature or reality, and he begins to teach it to us. Now, in the Old Covenant, this was an outward laws written on natural you know, stones and parchments and things like that. In the New Covenant, he starts to teach you that law, writing that law on your heart. He starts to show, write on you a nature, and that nature, when you start to read it, when you start to read that law written on your heart, it's totally different than the law of sin and death that you've lived by your whole life. They're two different laws, two different natures aiming in two different directions. You don't, in other words, you don't naturally understand, appreciate, or like the law that he begins to write on your heart. And many, many times you feel that the law of his spirit is wrestling with or lusting against, as, as Paul says in Galatians, the law of the flesh. These two things you find to be contrary to each other in you. The spirit sets its desires against the flesh. The flesh sets its desires against the spirit. If you follow the, the, the flesh, you're not going to do the things that you know are right and good. But if you walk by the spirit and submit to the spirit, then he'll put to death the, the works of the flesh and you'll live. And that's, again, that's, that's, the, that's in the New Testament, but that's also in the Old Testament in these pictures where the Lord begins to confront Israel with a law, with a nature, with a reality that is perfect and clean and righteous and true. And they don't like it. They disobey it. They ignore it. He starts to tell them little things. 
to see if they're willing to submit to them. He says, you know what? I want you to rest on the Sabbath day. I want you to, on the seventh day, I want you to understand that everything on that day is provided for you and that man's work and man's labor and man's effort don't enter into the picture. So I want you to understand you can gather on the sixth day and it'll over it'll 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 supply you for the seventh day and nothing that you do to add to it will be seen to be good. In fact, if you try to gather on that day it's going to turn to worms. If you end up trying to gather you know, do your labor, do your, do your, uh, your, your jobs and whatever on that day, it's, it's going to end up being a curse for you. Man doesn't contribute. Are you able to believe that only I can supply for you, can be your provision, can be your rest on one day of the week? You know, and, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. There's so many examples and, and, um, Maybe I'll just maybe I'll just end by. We could pick this up next week because there's a lot of these things. If you just and, and I recommend to all of you, I know these are sometimes. If you focus on the details and don't ask the Lord and let the Lord kind of show you beyond the details what's behind them, it can it can be boring or, or can be confusing to read through Exodus and Levit, through, through Leviticus. But if you look at it and and as as what it is. As a, as a picture of what it means to come out of one life and be taught a new life, then, then uh, Exodus through, through Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy can, can become uh, incredibly instructive books of the Old Testament. And again, I just want to maybe say that none of it, none of these things that are we find to be disagreeable or we find to be difficult are just arbitrary dealings of God to see if we're going to pass certain tests or to make things harder for us. None of it has to do with that. All of it, every detail of it, is the love of God, the kindness of God to make a way for us to come out of that in which we were born and the pit that we dug for ourselves by living in and following and loving that nature in which we were born, to come out of that and to follow him and to work with him and to live in him in, in, in coming into a, an experience of his kingdom. 